Hi, this is Mike Livermore, and with me today is Willis Jenkins, who's the John Allen Hollingsworth Professor of Ethics and the Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. His work focuses on the environmental humanities, and he can often be found in transdisciplinary collaborations, tackling hard questions related to how humans understand and interact with the natural world. Willis, thanks for joining me today. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here. Just to get us started, uh, I was curious, like, what brought you to this intersection of religion, ethics, and the environment where you've spent your career kind of thinking about these issues? Yeah, no, fair question. Um, and, and I suppose, like, many questions that come to mid-career academics who have made kind of a transition, <laughs> there's a long story behind it. But the short of it is, I, more or less, that, you know, I trained in... Uh, religious ethics with a focus on environmental issues and in a kind of conventional way, you know, that is like, how did, how did a few big Christian traditions reason historically about human environment relations and what kind of implications would that have for contemporary environmental issues? Uh, and uh, then, you know, my first job was that I was at Yale Divinity School with an appointment also in the forestry school. And, and I realized I didn't have a lot of really helpful interesting things to say to the people in the forestry environment school about particular problems. And, and yet I thought that someone with my training should be able to. Uh, and so, yeah, I really started focusing on just trying to get involved in not just the, not just sort of like the cultural translation of, of issues, but really, um, a kind of humanistic contribution to, to how problems are interpreted from the beginning, how they're designed from the beginning. Um, and, you know, coming and coming to UVA in an environmental humanities position has really, really kind of opened that up. Yeah, that's great. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different ways that I think we could we could take our conversation. But what, one thing that just kind of comes to mind that sometimes troubles me when we talk about the, the humanities mm -hmm. is that it, it strikes me as a weird way of carving up the joints in, in academia um, that... I'm not sure that historians and philosophers have all that much in common with each other. And we put them under this rubric of the humanities. And do you think that that's a category that's worthwhile? Or is it just like all other intellectual disciplines that aren't, you know, the sciences? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, Andres Clarence, who's an engineer, and he's on, the, he's on our Environmental Resilience Institute, said... You know, I basically think of the university as engineering and everything else is religious studies, which is his way, <laughs> which is, he was joking, of course, but it was also his way of saying, you know, humanities, social sciences, whatever, it's all just kind of like squishy non-math is what <laughs> Right, right. Non-quantitative yeah. disciplines, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good question. I, um, and I think especially in this field where there's a sort of interdisciplinary interpretation mm -hmm. of environmental issues and we're trying to think about how to, yeah, how to find collaborations of sciences and economics, especially sciences and economics, and also engineering and design to some extent. Uh, humanities becomes, arts and humanities becomes kind of mm -hmm. a box. And um, yeah, I think sort of two ways about it. I mean, actually, you know, I'm speaking directly from the experience of being on a, a panel, the president's panel about how UVA should invest in resilience and sustainability yesterday. And I was the I was the lone humanities guy out of like 20 people. Mm. And, you know, the questions were coming kind of like, what should the, what can the humanities be? What should they do? And on the one hand, I'm really happy to, to talk about the, the need for research that is attentive to a wide range of cultural interpretations, 
that is, you know, methodologically imaginative, that can engage the arts and invite public imagination, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, yeah, I mean, I hear your point. I, I think it's a pretty loose coalition from from people who really don't share uh, research methods. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, too. I was thinking about this because also the social science. Some, I don't think of the social sciences as, as falling within the rubric of the humanities. Other, yeah. Sometimes yeah. it gets put in there. But yeah. one, one thing I think is funny is if you call a social scientist a humanist, they would get very angry. And if you call a humanist a social scientist, they would get very angry. And so I think that the fact that they get lumped together, neither one of them likes that. So maybe that's a way of saying that maybe the category doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, it may well not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, on the environment, one of the things, um, you know, that is, is especially fun about your work and, and some of your recent work, especially is, you know, trying to make these interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, cross humanities and sciences collaborations work and, and you know, generate product and not just, you know, be a panel or, a, uh, you know, a, a talk session, but actually, you know, create real intellectual contributions and real intellectual uh, progress. And so maybe you know, it's, it's more illuminating to talk about some of these um, abstract <laughs> academic issues in the context of, of real projects that you've worked on. So one um, that we have chatted about in the past a little bit is this project on, on water. And this is a huge interdisciplinary group. I mean, it's hugely interdisciplinary. The group is good sized. It's not massive, but it's hugely interdisciplinary in the sense of um, folks from the hard sciences. There's a lawyer. Um, in the group, um, economics, um, engineering, religious studies, and so on. And um, I'm curious just about what kind of how that, that project got started and um, what the project is about. Let's kind of start with that. It's about, it's about water, water rights in general. But what, what's the kind of the specific interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary perspective that, the, um, that you saw was missing and that this group was kind of forged to help address? Yeah, so this group was a came out of an initiative from UVA's Environmental Resilience Institute that was you know, broadly themed on water futures, but there was a particular team they wanted to, to work on water security. And I mean, this will get directly to your question about what, are the, what do the humanities do? Um, I sit on the ERI board and, and, and I played what is often my role, which was to say like, well, what's so great about water security? Like, why not a different concept? Like, why not water justice? And why not water sovereignty? Look at all the, look at all the ways of thinking about water that the discourse of water security Security excludes, um, and uh, Karen, the director of the IRI, kind of called me on it. She's like, basically, like, okay, smarty pants, humanities guy, how about <laughs> how about you uh, co-direct a team on water security then? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but that but that does express what my worry was that some of the concepts that organize research, especially environmental change research, that can be mm-hmm. taken as common sense, have a kind of unreflective normative frame to them. And it's not so much. It's not that I, I'm an ethicist. It's not that I dislike the normative frame. It's that I, I want there to be you know responsibility for how the problem is framed right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also you know in this context, it wasn't. I mean, you know, my my stance wasn't that you can't use the phrase water security, but let's ask to what extent can you begin to include some of the uh, cultural valuations of water that have historically been excluded from international water security discourse. And so, yeah, we really, we really tried to push the envelope on that. Yeah. It's, 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 so, I mean, in a way there's, there's almost a kind of a philosophy of science element to some of this stuff. I mean, you get, I think as a, a quote unquote humanist that gets pulled into these conversations, you get asked to play some different roles again, in part due to the 
you know, the kind of open-ended nature of what we mean when we refer to the humanities. And so it's a little bit about questioning concepts from mm -hmm. almost from a scientific perspective to say, like, are these the right ways of thinking about these problems um, to make progress on them scientifically, but also, you know, normatively, you know, how are we think about these issues? Are there unstated um, normative assumptions or undefended or undefendable, <laughs> for yeah. that matter, normative yeah. assumptions? Um, so just to kind of get into the details of this project, you know, what is, what is, what, what is the concept of water security, you know, and how, how has it been used in, um, like, what do we mean, like, what, what is meant by that and, and, and how is it structured, you know, scientific inquiry or kind of policy conversations? Yeah, so actually, we were we were really fortunate to bring in um, probably one of the best authorities in the world on the history of the water security concept, uh, Jeremy mm -hmm. Schmidt. Um, so, and he he joined the team and, and and really helped sort of frame its significance. But you know, I, I think just really basically, um, mm -hmm. it would be fair to say that water security has been thought as securing the minimum quantity of water for you know what humans need, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, in a in a yeah, in a, in a in the most efficient way, generally, and so there's this kind of um, uh, constant, or maybe maybe the main pole in existing water security discourse would be the uh, a tension between um, the efficiency of of water distribution versus um, universality of making sure that every single human's water needs are met. Got it. So in a way we could, could is, there, is it fair to analogize it to a concept like food security exactly. or even like economic security when we're talking about, um, yeah, just the, the, the idea that people, there's human needs and um, what matters is ensuring some st stable and broad ac accessibility to, you know, whatever the resource, energy security could be another one. Yeah, completely. Yeah, and so then um, you know the other lead on this project is Paolo Dorico, um, who's um, he's a hydrologist. He's a chair of uh, environmental sciences at UC Berkeley, and his work is his work is um, really about the, the quantitative hydrology of water security as embodied in food. And so his big point is like, look, so much of the water that humans need is not like the the water that comes out of the tap or the, that they need for we need for drinking and, and bathing, but really it's it's most of the water we use is in our, is in food, right? And right. so he's really He's had, his work is really focused around um, quantifying flows of water um, that are implicit in food. Yeah. yeah, so just to get into some of this conceptual space. So what is the difference between, you know, say, a concept like water security, which strikes me as deeply normative, really, mm -hmm. um, kind of on its face, um, but... But maybe, but maybe, of course, having clear um, scientific or engineering kind of implications because we could talk, we could evaluate a system, a, a real hydrological system or a real built environment to ask, you know, what, uh, what are the consequences for water security of this, of X thing yep. that we're evaluating? How does that differ from using a frame like water justice or water rights? Um, in, in, in this evaluative posture of kind of taking what we know about the natural world and engineering and science and so forth, and then kind of um, understanding whether we're making good or bad decisions, which I, I take to be the evaluative posture. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would put it this way. What we wanted to do was create um, a quantitative model where it would be possible to visualize um, 
what water security looks like under different value regimes. So that is to say, um, like, okay, if you go all in on water security as being defined by universal human rights, you know, this is what this is what you get. Um, uh, and maybe the key, but really the key thing here was we wanted to find some way of expressing important values for water that um, I guess you could say. Um, care for the water itself. <laughs> like what if the river is sacred, right? Or what if the water has rights of its own? Or what if the ecological benefits, services, communities that are sustained by water are seen as, you know, not just desirable, but let us say like foundationally important to a community's identity such that they should be bound up into water security. How could we, how could we express that? Um, and then, yeah. So, I mean, that was, the, I think the key the key innovate, innovative thing we're trying to do so that you can begin to compare different ideas of water security within the same volumetric framework. So you could ask, I mean, just, just to, you know, a concrete example of uh, where there's different types of interests at play would be something like in the, on the West Coast, there's often conflict between agriculture and like endangered species requirements. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, the, there's there's frequently questions about what are the minimum flows necessary in a river to protect like span, uh, salmon spawning grounds and, you know, the advocates for for the for the endangered species will have one set of water flows that they're going to advocate for. And then the agricultural interests will say, no, we need this water. The salmon don't need that much or we shouldn't care about the salmon at all. And of course, in the U.S., there's a legal framework to ensure the minimum water flows that aren't going to jeopardize the, the species. Um, but we can ask things like, you know, it, it, is this protective if the salmon have have some kind of right if they're mm -hmm. uh, they have some interest that we ought to respect you know what what does that look like and I guess what it sounds like from the project that you're describing is that it, the goal wasn't to answer those kinds of <laughs> those kinds of hard yeah. normative questions but just to say you know we can build a model that depending on how you answer those normative questions then the model can tell you something about what water flows should look like yes and that that was the idea. So it wasn't it wasn't an optimizing equation. There are equations in there, but they're not optimizing, mm -hmm. um, in the sense that if you you plug in the values and you get like the best answer. But it's really um, if you begin with some articulation of the values that inform ostensibly a form inform your notion or a community's notion of water security. Um, this is the kind of, of volume trade offs you would get. And I would say so we've been talking. I mean, this has been kind of framed like what can what the, what can the humanities bring to environmental change research? But the, there's a I experience this also as a really salutary challenge because to me um, in, in, in from a more humanities based approach, because to work with a hydrologist, you know, he's you know, Paolo is he's so interested. So so open to philosophy, really excited to read in environmental ethics. And um, so his question was, it wasn't hard to convince him that there, we should, that, that hydrology, should, hydrology should take account of, uh, you know, intrinsic value theories or indigenous studies theories. Um, and his immediate question was like, okay, so what would be the, what, what should be our proxy for that, right? Like how much, how much water flow should we put uh, for appropriately respecting, you know, the intrinsic value of a waterway? And then, yeah, that, that then is a kind of, it's forcing a, a, 
um, kind of evaluative approach to really think in a quantitative way about how do these values get expressed. And so, of course, we picked a few proxies, you know, like 80% flow, 20% flow. Mm. Um, but that's the kind of, I think that's the kind of political work that, you know, ideally a deliberative watershed community would undertake. Right. And one of the things that's also interesting about this, I think, too, is it highlights this intersection of, of values and, and science in a way that's like very explicit um, and I think beneficial for that reason. You know, there are other environmental contexts where we kind of subsume the value choices into the scientific in- inquiry. We kind mm-hmm. of pretend like what we're doing is we're just answering a scientific question. Like, for example, you know, what, um, you know, what uh, water flows are necessary to achieve water security. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we go to a bunch of scientists and say, answer the question for us, please, and and tell us, and then we'll, you know, we'll develop policies accordingly. But as you point out, that's a deeply normative question. And so we're, it's, it's kind of almost inappropriate or unfair to kick that to the scientists and expect them to give us an answer, or at the very least, it puts them in an extremely awkward position um, because there are these embedded normative um, questions that we'd be much better served by um, at least, you know, uh, from a deliberative perspective, by having the science answer, in a sense, what the science can answer, um, uh, but then make, being more explicit about how that connects up to to these deeper value questions. Yes. Yeah, completely. I always wince in empathy for the scientists when I hear politicians say, well, the science has said X, and mm-hmm. so therefore we must do Y, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's really unfair. Yeah, yeah it's, it's tough. And you know, this comes up in climate debates all the all time. The time. You know, yeah. let's just do what the science says. And, and it's sometimes my friends <laughs> yeah, <laughs> say right. that, right? And it, it is frustrating. You know, I think there is a reason why some advocates and politicians are inclined to say things like that, which is they want to, they want to make it seem as though what's going on is not a contest of values, mm-hmm. but is instead, you know, just a, just a simple question of fact. So, you know, and you know, get thinking of the the context of the the water rights research. You know, you could have this really fancy model where this everyone kind of agrees on the science, which would be like nirvana in today's political discourse, right? right? So we're like, okay, we all agree that this model is an accurate representation of water flows and that kind of thing. Um, but what we really disagree about is the relative value of you know uh, people's you know, property rights and agricultural interests versus, you know, whether the salmon have some interest that we ought to respect um, in their own right versus, you know, um, uh, traditional indigenous people's relationships to to this uh, water. And that's what we really disagree about. Now, what do we do? (laughs) Right. 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 So what's the answer? (laughs) Like, what do we do? Like, have we been helped by the model if what we end up ultimately recognizing is that we have deep, maybe insoluble values disagreements? Yeah. Well, so it's a fair question, especially given the state of our current democratic capacity to have meaningful conversation across significant value differences. But I would, if I can answer from my commitments, <laughs> I would say I think that that's in the long run better mm-hmm. um, to know to know what where the differences lie rather than um, kind of um, uh, obscuring them. 
inside of a inside of a, either an economic model or a scientific model because they're going to come out eventually, right? Uh, I think it's better. I mean, I think it's better. Yeah, I would like to think it's better for a pluralist democracy to figure out how to be a democracy amidst deep, irreconcilable pluralism um, than to hide its conflicts. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so just, I mean, I, I want to agree with you. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but to, to just play the devil's advocate, you could actually imagine that, you know, that kind of the argument that runs, well, look, at some level, these, these are really deep disagreements. Um, and we, again, kind of as you said, we live in a pluralistic society. We want people to, we, we like that pluralistic society in a sense, right? We certainly like um, the, our, our own rights to decide how to live our lives and, and what counts for the good life. And we're going to disagree with each other. You know, there are ways that we can frame questions that turn those disagreements into hot disagreements that yep. get people angry and, and inflame their kind of identity and, and affiliation and are oriented towards in-group and out-group kind of ways of thinking about mm -hmm. the world. And then there are ways of fra framing disputes that are jargon-laden and technocratic and difficult to understand. <laughs> and people just say, eh, that's too, that's boring. And I'm going to go like play, watch sports and, you know, hang out with my family. Uh, and, you know, maybe we can, and, you know, you disagree with me, but I don't even understand what we're talking about. So let's have a beer. Yeah. I appreciate, Mike, I have a lot of sympathy for the technocratic view. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I think then it, it, I guess I think it can lead then to the kind of alienation that you see around climate, right? Like a bunch of people are doing some stuff I don't understand to, um, you know, whatever it is, like take my freedoms or whatever <laughs> Americans are saying now. Um, raise, my, raise my energy prices. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. in fairness, it's like your, if your energy prices are going to go up, we should probably give you a good reason why that's Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right. And it shouldn't require you to understand an integrated assessment model. Right? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And the trust the experts things it gets. Yeah. So that's interesting. So the trust the experts thing gets thin when we're talking about like real world implications on people's lives. We want to be able to. But, it, but it, then again, just to, again, continue to play the devil's advocate here, your energy prices are going to go up. And we could say, well, the reason your energy prices are going to go up is because we've made contestable value judgments about the relative importance of future generations versus current generations, you know, where you sit in society versus where other people sit in society, our responsibilities and, you know, rights vis-a-vis -vis the global community. And we've made those decisions that are deeply value-laden, and that's going to determine how much your energy prices are going to go up. Or mumbo-jumbo, 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 trust the experts, don't worry about it. That's why your energy prices are going to go up. And, and yeah, I do wonder which one of those ultimately is more conducive to, um, you know, again, just kind of getting along with each other. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, this is not something that I am an expert in, the sort of like cultural cognition mm, bit. I mean, mm -hmm. I certainly do think, I mean, yeah, I'm interested. I don't really know which way to go on that. I mean, I, I, I'm really interested in that question. I think, again, like <laughs> from my own intellectual commitments, the way I would like to answer mm -hmm. is that, um, you know, you hope that, you, that people can um, be motivated by their commitments. Maybe, you know, maybe not like 100%, but enough that you accept a, a, a higher energy bill because you acknowledge that you care for future generations or something like that. Right. And I think that that's plausible. Um, um, 
I think I'm I'm among those who are skeptical of of especially climate policy and I, I guess also water policy, um, all always being delivered to the public in terms of self-interest, you know, like this will be better yeah. for you because you're going to avoid some totally terrible mm-hmm. thing or you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, have a million green jobs or whatever. Um, and uh, maybe that, but also <laughs> um, ask people to be who they want to be, right? Like mm-hmm. you want, you want to be like, there's incredible bipartisan support about being the kind of people who care for future generations. Like that's not really a controversial value. It's controversial, like what it means, of course, mm-hmm. but I would like to think that that's a, uh, a commitment that could lead to some practical policy implication, including that your gas is more expensive. Right. And maybe the thing is that we don't, I mean, ideally, we wouldn't necessarily have to agree um, with the choices that are made, but we would, well, because we're not going to, because we live in right. a pluralistic democracy. Yeah. And the chances that my preferred policies are going to be the ones that are adopted are roughly one out of 330 million. Right. <laughs> and so, um, what I'm supposed to, I think the way this is supposed to work is that I'm supposed to accede to the choices that are made and recognize, in part because there are values, but in part, you know, that are roughly commensurate with my values. I recognize them as the kind of values that people have, even if they're not exactly the ones that reflect my relative weighing of different interests. But I recognize that there's a democratic process that we all have a voice in. And ultimately, what comes out of that is a view that. Um, And I I am committed to that democratic process because it respects my voice in some equal way. And I think one of the tricky things these days is that people have questions about that. Yeah, well said. Um, Yeah, so then um, just the other part of this um, that I I was curious to get your thoughts on is, of course, we're talking about kind of – sometimes people refer to as sociological legitimacy, right? Do people actually accept the – you know, the outputs of, of, of a political process. But mm-hmm. there's also kind of normative legitimacy. Like, is it actually defendable as a democratic practice to throw mumbo jumbo at people and, you know, as a way of getting them to be compliant as opposed to explaining the, the true grounds of, um, of our decisions? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, just to refer back to this, again, this, this panel that UVA had yesterday, they asked a number of us to, um, to reflect on the relation of climate and democracy, because that's like an mm. area they want to invest in. And um, so my little team of three people, uh, we, we, were, we basically said, well, it seems like the question here is, can democracies survive climate change? Mm. Like, I, I, or maybe to put it better, like, it, uh, are democratic societies possessed of the capacities to respond well to climate change? Or mm-hmm. is it like the kind of, is it just so overwhelming, the temporality is so misaligned with, mm-hmm. you know, the temporalities of political processes, mm-hmm. the incentive structure across generations, just so perverse, whatever it is, all the things, right? Um, that democracies just are really ill-equipped for it. And maybe <laughs> you kind of need the, the technocratic mumbo jumbo mm-hmm. as a way of, of fudging it. I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I would feel bad if I was making that argument, but I would certainly be open to hearing it. <laughs> I mean, if it's true, it's true. I mean, that, cause right. that kind of thing is empirical, right? <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, and yeah. we shouldn't just, you know, and this is the, this is a tricky thing is to, uh, have our commitments, but we don't want them to, we don't want to engage in wishful thinking. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. is, which is tricky. Yeah. So, so another really interesting project that you've been engaged in recently is this Coastal Futures Conservatory. And I, I think of this, so if, if the Water Rights Project is about um, taking 
um, let's say, perspectives drawn from the humanities <laughs> and um, using those perspectives to help, inf uh, I mean, in this project, really highlight the underlying normative values that are driving conversations about, you know, particular environmental question, water security in that case, and untangle the normative and the empirical and the scientific and the cultural. Um, what I take the Coastal Futures Conservatory is about, well, you tell me what it's about. It strikes me as a little bit about translation. It strikes me as a little bit about, you know, uh, uh, broadening uh, the, the, the techniques of scientific inquiry in a way that's more inclusive. But maybe you could just describe what the project is and, and then how you see um, how it relates to this broader science humanities um, set of issues. Yeah, so Coastal Futures Conservatory is a kind of a little UVA startup funded by an internal grant that uh, has been has been asked to think about integrating arts and humanities into Virginia's uh, really world class coastal research program. So UVA leads a an NSF funded long term ecological research site called the Virginia Coast Reserve uh, along the eastern shore of Virginia, and it's just an, it's just a great place to study coastal the ecological dynamics of coastal resilience because it's the largest undisturbed barrier island system in the world mm. um, and also a place that is um, experiencing sea level rise at three times the global average. And so you just get lots of dynamics that are that it's a great laboratory for for scientists interested in this. And so um, uh, knowing that, you know, wanting to build environmental humanities into environmental change research generally around UVA, uh, you know, this is a great place to think with and, and, and the um, and the staff and the scientists there were, were, were really interested. They wanted to know, like, how can we how can we have arts and humanities um, more involved here? Um, and um, basically, a lot of conversations with a music professor named Matthew Bertner, who specializes in ecoacoustics. We decided to, to to call our project a conservatory, you know, school of music, um, and to foreground uh, listening ways in. Um, and so that, you know, that means like, you know, listening across disciplines and listening across borders, but also literally um, listening. And so um, one of my favorite examples is um, we sonify the data sets that are produced by the VCR scientists. So um, Matthew and his graduate students will take a, a data set, you know, like on uh, water quality in a, in a um, particular area and then basically translate that into a sonic signature, you know, take a huge CSV file and mm -hmm. use machines to, to assign particular sounds to each data point and then you can listen to it. And then, of course, you know, then they, it, <laughs> uh, depending on your, your, um, method of ecoacoustics. And Mike, I know more about methods in ecoacoustics than I really would have anticipated. But um, depending on it, then you begin to work with that. You might compose with it or manipulate it in some way so, so that it, it begins to um, uh, sound a particular way. And so then when the public, you know, it's, and I'll, I've also had this experience, um, you know, when you look at a, a visual graph of temporal data plotted over time, you take it in in an instant, right? Like, like, the, like, you know, it's especially like, you know, carbon emissions over 50 years or whatever. But if you if you listen to it, you really have to attend to the temporality and to the change in it over time mm. because you're sitting there for what, even if it's just like, you know, 30 seconds, like you experience that in a, in a certain way, you really have to attend to it. Um, and I, I think it just, it, it invites a different kind of cognition. And so um, anyway, that's one kind of listening. And then I uh, will just 
there's other parts, there's another other number of other components to this conservatory, but um, we also kind of commissioned hu typical humanities-based research from historian, literary scholars, and then that informs these kind of multidisciplinary performances that, that Matthew really uh, orchestrates mm. so that he, an audience can come, and we've had a number of performances, an audience can come and experience a... a uh, you know, a concert, but you know that it's informed by um, coastal sciences, it's informed by indigenous studies, it's informed by ethics. Um, and I, you know, I don't know, I don't have any kind of uh, data on this, but what I imagine that we're doing is that we're inviting a broader range of imaginative cultural response to what we know about rapid coastal change. Mm. Yeah, it's real. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting. And I think, you know, I mean, one distinction I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on with respect to this project is sometimes in, in these conversations on, on the humanities and, and, and the environment, especially for folks who don't necessarily have, you know, are, are new to the idea of thinking about the humanities, they almost can think of the role as being like you would hire a communications expert for. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's a way of communicating the science to the public. Um you know, and and that's fine. I, I don't know that humanity scholars are, are who I would who I would tap for the for that particular job. <laughs> Not always known for being the most accessible. <laughs> right. right. I mean, these are people who literally write out what they're going to say before standing up at a podium and reading their essays. Right. And um, and so but what I've thought of. As a, as a kind of alternative to that is is me, sophisticated meaning making. It's not about necessarily communicating as a pre uh, you know kind of a, a pre generated message and just figuring out how to you know get that message across. It, it's this process of meaning making. Um, I'm just curious what you think of that alternative, and or if there's or you think there's something slightly adjacent to that, or, or, or totally different from it. No, I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I really resist the idea that, you know, the humanities are should be involved in environmental change research to translate to the public. So yeah, A, because it's a bad idea, and B, because, you know, I, I, I hope that we're doing something more creative. And I would say in this case, I'm saying arts and humanities. We're really right. kind of music, really foregrounding music as a, as a way in here. And um, so I'll just say, let me give you two examples of, of how involving the arts and humanities has has invited meaning making, as you say. I like that. So one is um, uh, uh, on the eastern shore. There's a place, a, a local museum called the Barrier Island Center, that is really um, devoted to remembering the lost social life of the hmm. set of, of when the Barrier Islands offshore were settled. They were settled um, uh, by by settler people, but after indigenous folks used them. For, in, through the 19th century up until about 1933 when there was a series of hurricanes and they were just like, no, we're leaving. So mm -hmm. they left and then there's this museum that's dedicated to it. And so we, uh, among all these exhibits about, you know, what fishing was like and what the hotel was like and so on, we made these um, sound installations. So you would, so people could come in and they could pick up headphones and they would listen to, yeah, like a sonification of sea level rise over time or something like that, right? And and, and then next to it, there was just a, a very short little placard that explained the science that went into mm -hmm. the data that was created and just a note about how the sonification was made. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing else said, you know? There's nothing else be like, and look, sea level rise is really threatening the eastern right. shore and you need to think about what this community is going to do. Like, no white paper kind of communication, right? Mm -hmm. And 
Um, again, unscientific response here, but the the first of all, the opening was really well attended, and there was just like a real excitement, like a buzz, you know? Mm-hmm. People would put on their headphones and they were their eyes would widen and they would kind of look up and smile. And like, I don't know what's happening in their mind, but I just think, well, in some way they are participating in the meaning making of what to make of the science of coastal change in this mm-hmm. place. And they are connecting it right, you know, literally in the place of historical memory of, um, of, ra- of, of kind of radical social change in response mm-hmm. to coastal vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I think, you know, I just think that's of a higher order. Now, like the ne- next step, like, yeah, like I would, if we could keep this going, I would love to then um, uh, find ways to invite and participate in more community meaning making along those lines. And, and um, you know, we've done some things like we invite, a, we did like a, a writing workshop and there was a, there was a artist workshop for local artists to do some stuff with the, the ghost forest there. Um, and we have a, I should say we have a major indigenous led indigenous storytelling project mm. um, for indigenous experiences of, of coastal change. Mm. Um, it's kind of uh, extraordinary. Um, so all that is, is sort of inviting community meaning making, I'd say. But then mm-hmm. on the other, let me just, uh, this other side of, of, of what this is, how this has changed the way that um, we researchers uh, at UVA research the coast. So... We also, we have, you know, about once a year, we gather all the related researchers, sciences, scientists, human, humanists, and artists. And Matthew, the musician, does a, he does a kind of eco-acoustics listening workshop, and he makes people go out and take this, take microphones and field recorders and basically undertake meditative listening exercises in place. And um, yeah, uh, I, the first time we did this, I was really worried. I just thought, like, hmm. this, this project is going to fail right from the beginning because the scientists <laughs> are going to think... This is exactly what happens when you invite right. arts and humanities <laughs> over. Like you start doing these like weird, like, I don't know, like contemplative listening. Like this right. is not research, you know? Right. But so Karen McGlathery, who's the lead scientist for this place, comes back after a half an hour of directed listening. And she says, every single researcher needs to do this exercise. Huh. And it was because she thought she would be bored. You know, like I work here all the time. I'm not going to learn anything. Huh. And she experienced it differently. She paid attention to different things. And then, you know, like, um... We brought back recordings just explaining what we were doing to people at UVA, and one of the one of the um, oyster reef scientists, Matt Rydenbach, listened to a recording of an oyster reef, and he just was kind of he goes, "Huh? Like I bet we could build a way of I bet I could answer the questions I have about oyster reef vitality basically by some acoustic metrics." And mm-hmm. so we built this. Well, I, we didn't, but the the music some music grad students and some of Matthew's grad students built a an acoustic monitoring thing. And they got some publications out of it about how to, uh, and it was just, you know, you can't kind of like kind of predict that, but it's just when you're invited to attend to something through a different disciplinary lens that it allows new kinds of research questions to open up. Yeah. That's a great story. And in a way it's almost like, I'm trying to think of a, of an analogy, but it's like, uh, you know, you, you, we worry about monocropping in the, in agriculture. And one of the ways that we address that is we keep around heritage breeds of various mm-hmm. things. And it's almost like one thing you could think of is the humanities as a, as a storehouse of kind of heritage breeds of intellectual <laughs> inquiry. And occasionally it's good to just take some of those seeds and throw them out into the, the more monoculturish um, disciplines and just disrupt them a little bit. And, and sometimes good, good things come out of that. Yeah, that's nicely. That's, inter- that's a good metaphor, Mike. I'll use that one. 
um, so on this, I mean, I think, um, you know, this, this notion of coastal change and uh, that you've been digging into here, um, and this is a bit of a left field question, but something been on my mind recently that, that you may have some thoughts on from this experience, you know, as climate change sets in one of the big questions that societies in here in the U S our society, you know, cultures here and, and then around the world are going to face is this question of, of retreat. Um, we're going to lose coastal lands. Um, coastal lands are going to really radically change. And um, this is a massive social problem, a cultural, political, economic. I mean, it, this is going to be a very big deal. And we've seen, you know, just just the just the leading edge of some of these questions show up um, after you see a major storm, you know, um, come through. And then people will talk a little bit about do we rebuild? Mm-hmm. Do we not rebuild? What does that look like? And so on. And I wonder... You know, and then and and what struck me when you were kind of telling the story of the of the museum is is there was a retreat there, right? There was a a group that had a thriving community, it sounds like, and then ultimately decided to leave in the face of um, environmental risks that they face, environmental vulnerabilities, and then there's a and there's a relationship between this kind of retreat and remembering, mm-hmm. and. And I, I'm just wondering if you have any insights from, from this experience about the broader set of questions of how to how to manage this, I, what I take to be just an incredibly difficult um, set of questions that we're all going to start to really seriously face. Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, I, I'm, if I can just answer really generally, I would say it's going to be a, a huge site that needs um, really well-informed interpretive research because... <clears throat> I mean, just the amount of cultural memory and loss that is happening already in the in in I guess environmentally stressed human migrations mm-hmm. is massive. So I mean, well, that's to put it in negative. There's also like incredibly new forms of incredible new forms of cultural exchange and cultural mm-hmm. flows, right? So that, you know that's going to make a real difference on and sort of what ideas and practices and foods. You know all that, all that stuff. What goes where, and then how the places that have been left are remembered. I mean, just you know, think about the repertoire we have of homeland and exile, mm. and how it affects our ongoing, our ongoing, you know, political life in the United States. But you know, in various ways, different political lives everywhere. Okay, so we're gonna have a whole new generation of homeland mm. and exile stories. We'll have unknown political consequences. So. Um, that's really, really broad. But when I think about the question of of what's going to happen along the coasts just in the next few decades, um, I think you know here's a real here's a place in which there needs to be yeah multi method humanities involved research because if you do like you know if you do whatever it is like um, saline incursion models or something like that, you can get a sense of like, okay, where is the arable land going to retreat to? Mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe you can overlay that with an economic model. Like, you know, what's the, what's the most efficient way to retreat from these places, but none of that's really going to match up with what people find to be culturally tolerable or the stories that they're going to tell about why they left, um, and what those stories are going to do later. And, you know, I can't say that like, if you involve a humanities researcher that then you can answer those questions, but you can at least begin to let the other forms of research be informed by that. Right. You can start to track it. You can recognize that that's yeah. one of the consequences of yeah. all of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, to shift gears a little bit uh, and to maybe bring some of the conversation to more of the religious studies side of your, of your, of your work, um, another really fun, again, interdisciplinary project that um, 
that we both know folks who have been part of is the work that you've done on on this kind of these sanctuaries or these sacred spaces around the world, um, which sounds um, like a lot of fun <laughs> and also uh, very interesting research. So maybe maybe again you could kind of introduce what that that work is, the sanctuary lab, and um, you know what some of the work that you've done there, and, and maybe how it fits into this what broader question about religion and how religious ways of thinking um, interact with kind of environmental change, climate change, and, and the like. Yeah, so Sanctuary Lab, it's another transdisciplinary experiment, and it involves people from arts, sciences, humanities interested in how planetary stresses are interpreted and experienced in places regarded as sacred in some way by some community. And uh, the idea there is that, again, you know, um, big global problems are going to be experienced in particular ways, you know, according to different particular inheritances. And some of the and so I'm always kind of looking for a, a way into that. And, and, and one way in is to start with how um, places that are set apart in the imagination and maybe also in politics mm. as special are interpreted when they begin to change. And so actually the first place we went to was Yellowstone National Park. And you might think, well, wait, Yellowstone, I thought this was a, you know, a religion project. But it was great. It was like taking the methods of religious studies to treat Yellowstone as a kind of secular sanctuary, you know, a place that's been sacralized by the American wilderness tradition and its pieties. And that when folks go there, they're often invited to experience the place with that kind of regard, you know, a place that is set apart and where um, the kind of the wilderness sublime can, you know, cure your soul. Mm-hmm. Well, well, and really a place is, a, you know, in the American wilderness tradition, a refuge from the rest of society. Mm-hmm. So, but now, so will, you know, Yellowstone is like a crucible of climate change in North America because it's, it's one of the places most vulnerable to fire. And we actually talked with the, the uh, a climate modeler of Yellowstone and uh, he, you know, his research, he, he had published research that showed that um, that basically all of Yellowstone is projected to burn. Oh, gosh. Um, and uh, such, I mean, burn at such a rate that it will not be able to sustain its forest within, right. I think, I don't remember the, his research, but I want to say 50 years. Oh, wow. And so he, he presented this in like a, you know, austere scientific way, but he knew that we were from religious studies, or at least the directors were from religious studies. And then he wanted to say what this meant to him. And he started talking about, you know, Muir and Emerson and, and how, how I think destabilizing it was for him to think that this place of pure nature Mm. was going to be, was that vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So, and so then the idea, so then we also took a different research team, including your colleague, John Cannon to, to Bataan a few years ago. And, um, and, and there's a whole different, you know, set of inheritances and a whole different set of, uh, environmental stresses. Um, and again, the idea was, okay, so here's a, here's a Himalayan Buddhist kingdom, um, with a, with a real strong national culture around, um, a form of Vajrayana Buddhism, um, and, uh, and especially a particular tradition of, of sacred valleys. So what happens when mm-hmm. sacred valleys are, uh, which are protected, you know, by, by, with these political protections, but also, um, spiritually protected through, um, associations with particular local divinities and these elaborate monastic rituals that, that, um, maintain spiritual protection of these valleys. So what happens when those valleys are, for example, vulnerable to glacial outburst floods from melting glaciers? Like not so much like what happens to the valley, but what happens to the tradition of interpreting the valley as sacred and protected? Um, and, um, that was actually, you know, of course it's more complicated 
ambivalent than I can like really express in a concise way now. But um, <laughs> the answers lead towards uh, Bhutan's climate policy, which is, you know, they are they present themselves as, as, as carbon negative. They have a massive conservation policy that is rooted in their interpretation of what the Buddhist heritage means for them. And um, I think they present themselves to the world as a as a as a sanctuary that's deserving of international protection. Uh, so they're kind of they're drawing on a, a religious heritage to kind of craft a place of political, I don't know, a political identity for them in in the in a world in which climate change is a major uh, flow. Yeah, I can imagine the the different stories emerging out of this kind of interaction of of sacred places and, and climate change, especially when we in the in in the Yellowstone case and the and the tradition of you know, very broadly kind of American wilderness environmentalism of thinking of these places as, as you say, um, refuges from city life and from, you know, other people. And, and they're, they're kind of places where people don't go and, or where the traces of human beings are imperceptible. And, right. And, you know, climate change obviously disrupts that. There, there are no places in the world that mm-hmm. um, are free of, of human traces. And does that, does that, is if this is if this is a word desacralize the the space does that make it less sacred i mean certainly the story that you raise with the with the climate modeler you know taking and 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 it's it's one thing to say oh we'll be inundating the new jersey shore and that's really harmful and it's going to have these negative consequences and maybe and and for some people maybe that is a sufficiently um uh, a salient example of climate change to be meaningful, but it's perhaps a different story to talk about wildfires in, in Yellowstone, a place that's supposed to be free and from from human influence. Although that's like absurd, it's a hugely managed space. But but in any case, I mean, so it seems like there are lots of complicated dynamics. There's one is that these spaces can be used as in a sense um, highly salient illustrations of the profound changes that are on the horizon. But there's also perhaps, you know, um, a complicated dynamic where some of the meaning is sapped out of these spaces because, you know, when we see them embedded in, um, you know, the kind of broader industrial human mm-hmm. landscape. Yeah, so actually that there's something like that dynamic is one that uh, our teams have, have asked themselves in one way or another. Basically, will... Um, places that regard themselves as sacred, as sanctuaries, as they are shaped more and more by big pressures that originate from causes, uh, you know, outside of themselves, will, will their character be maintained? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, it's especially fraught for the American wilderness tradition, of course, because if you have a tradition that, a, you know, a place is, is unmarked by humans and that is also what makes it special, then that's going to make it harder. Um, I mean, it's going to make it harder to incorporate what look like exogenous influences or the constant pervasive hand of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, stepping back from the particular, you know, anxiety that that causes, I think it's just really culturally interesting to to mark what kinds of vocabularies of human humanity and nature human natural systems will come out of that pressure so you know yellowstone is this iconic place for american views of 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 humanity and nature in a way that maybe the jersey shore isn't quite 
Um, and it make you know, make, you know, we, everyone, fo- everyone around the nation follows, you know, it's policy on wolves or snowmobiles mm-hmm. or whatever, because right. it makes a difference for how we imagine all of our environments. And so I, that's just to say, what is interesting to me about this project is it really focuses in on those, like those, those real sensitive cultural landscapes because it knows that the kinds of vocabularies and the questions that arise from there are going to be ones by which we interpret the rest of our uh, the well not our but in this case um, for Americans um, the the rest of their like interactions with the climate change world and I would say that um, something like that is true although it's different dynamics they don't have the same um, you know wilderness set of human nature ex- binary exclusions but something like that is true for the Bhutanese and their and their tradition of the sacred valley mm-hmm. um, the place that one goes for safety and enlightenment um, yeah. I mean, I would love it. I mean, in my ideal world, you know, you get great funding and you create um, uh, a whole set of, of, of research teams doing this for um, UNESCO-recognized sacred sites around the world, in part because you also, it's a way of tracking these emerging vocabularies by which humans are simultaneously interpreting really rapid global environmental changes, but with uh, all these really various cultural repertoires and inheritances. You know, and I think that's a... You know that—that's a point of that's that's something that need, that we kind of need to do better with. <laughs> um, so you know, especially uh, like in the big global reports, you know, there's going to be there's going to be talk about societies and cultural transitions and so on. But the language is always so austere, and it imagines mm-hmm. kind of you know humans universally interacting with the planet universally. But that's like, of course, that's not how it happens. You know, we're all culturally embedded, living in these stories, possessed of our lexicons. And um, I think what the, if there's one thing the environmental humanities kind of stands for, or takes at its task, is, is, is the need to be able to kind of pay real-time attention to this, this, this cultural, these many million, millions of cultural events mm-hmm. that are happening as people just try to interpret these changes with whatever they have at hand. Yeah. I mean, this is all fascinating. If there's any donors or NSF program officers <laughs> listening to this podcast, Willis Jenkins is, is the there guy to be in touch yeah. with. Um, so I feel like I, the, the last question is maybe the most abstract. I just feel like I have to get, get your thoughts on this while, while I have, have you, know, I think maybe, maybe many folks would be interested in a, in a scholar of, of environmental ethics and, and religion and climate change, your thoughts just generally on the political situation in the U.S. and how religion intersects with politics and with the environment, um, especially in, in, in the partisan dynamic, the incredibly unhelpful partisan dynamic that we have in the U.S. today. You know, obviously, we've been talking about the intersection of religion and climate change in the environment in a, in a, in a fairly nuanced way and, you know, in a very kind of religiously pluralistic kind of um, with a mindset. But... Um, but I'm just curious, it, it, just generally, if, if you've learned anything um, in, in your work that illuminates some of the, um, the ways that, that religion in public discourse in the United States and how it interacts with other affinities, geographic, partisan, and so on, to produce this really unhelpful dynamic, and, and is there any way that we can um, uh, do anything about it? Yeah. Wow. Okay. How long do we? Well, how long do we have, Mike? <laughs> Five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well. Okay. So. So. Um, I would say, yeah. This is so this is an active site of research. I mean, there's kind of a generation of not very helpful research that tried mm. to answer the question of something like, does being religious make you anti-environmental? Mm. 
Um, and that wasn't helpful for a number of reasons, including that researchers weren't always really clear what they meant by, by religious. Mm. Um, but there's just recently there's been, um, there's been better research that's come out around uh, religion and climate change. Um, and uh, as, I, as, I, as I follow it, um, you know, a couple findings are, one, it's, it's complicated to disentangle um, religious and political identity, because in this country, you know, our polarization has involved the polarization of, of religious identities, right? So, um, uh, but I think one one thing we can learn is, well, let me tell you, let me just mention a, a, a story and then say something about what, uh, how, what I think is going on. So, um, back in... Um, 2006, there was an evangelical declaration about climate change, mm-hmm. and it was signed by, you know, everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Presidents, colleges, all the big pastors, and their people were on TV. I think Falwell was on TV, you know, with Al Sharpton. And, mm-hmm. um, and then just 10 years later in 2016, Trump withdraws from Paris and there's silence, you know, mm-hmm. nothing, mm-hmm. right? At the same time, in two, that back in 2006, there was this global uh, assembly of, of evangelical Christians that they're called the Lausanne Conference, I think, that described climate change as one of the two gravest moral problems of our time, the other being human poverty. Mm. So, you know, formally it looks like it's a problem, and then, and then 10 years later in the United States it doesn't. Mm. So what happens? Um, and... Uh, uh, sociologists are kind of uncovering the research. There's a couple things that are happening. I mean, one is there's pretty intentional, um, uh, what do you want to say, like culture jamming, right? Like, um, so especially, you know, white evangelicals were targeted by um, by internal and external campaigns that uh, attempted to to kind of shame them into re-solidifying their alliance with um I guess you'd say the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party was worried that if it lost its evangelical um, base, that it would really lose its power base. Mm. And climate change was seen as a wedge issue. And so you saw like these really kind of like clearly very well-funded programs that were that went after key pastors, basically saying that they were they were unintentionally losing their Christian identity. They were becoming pagan. Mm-hmm. They were giving their kids over to being pagan. Um and so, okay, so maybe that worked. Maybe maybe there are other things at play. Maybe it had nothing to do with it. But what you do see is that it's not it's not right to say that evangelicals don't care about climate change. Right. What it is right to say is that white evangelicals who are U.S. citizens are much less likely to care about climate change. Mm-hmm. But black and brown evangelicals, much higher climate concern. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Catholics, which on the whole have a relatively higher concern towards climate change, also split by race. So white Catholics, much more likely to be skeptical, whereas um, Hispanic Catholics are not only more likely, they're more likely than the American public in general, right? Sure. So what role is religion and you know playing? Like what mm-hmm. role is evangelical Christian beliefs playing in there it's really you know you know you could be open to a i would be open to a hypothesis that would say well you know not much um mm. because it looks like it looks like you know race and um political affiliation is doing more work mm-hmm. um there is some more nuanced work inside of that like about how where, how religious affiliation affects how intensely and how the the climate views are held and how open they might be to change there's also really interesting international work um and this is really thin. I mean, so much of the religion and climate change work is focused on the United States, and there just isn't as much um, everywhere else, including the global south. But there is some, you know, really interesting work that needs to be done comparatively. So just for example, in Brazil, 
uh, evangelicals are more, way more likely to be mm. climate concerned than others. And the reason for that, of course, is that evangelicals in Brazil, are, they just occupy a totally different political right. space than evangelicals right. in the United States do. So that's just to say, okay, I just went on for a little bit there. But, you know, religion does a lot of different kinds of really particular work in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you really have to have smart research to attend to it. And I just, you know, here's a place where we just need so much more um, great social science to understand because it clearly is playing a, a, you know, a huge role. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I think that the two things there that really just strike me, uh, you know, well, the depth of the of the of the complexity of the situation, um, but also the, you know, that there's other tails wagging this dog, and yeah. um, you know, maybe just out of a kind of a, a cultural um, a proclivity, we we tend to look to religion to provide um, explanations when maybe that's at least in certain contexts not really. Um, the main driver, um, but nevertheless, it's still there's hugely important um, issues around, like uh, at the very least, how people understand these issues and talk about them and think about them. Yeah, um, like what you just said. Like right. sometimes I, sometimes I think, you know, religion may not be like a, a huge causal explanation, but it is often the explanation that people will give. You know, right. it's what they draw on to tell their story right. about why they did what they did. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Well, uh, thanks so much for um, taking the time to chat with me today. Willis, this has been a super interesting conversation. (laughs) Mike, it was really fun. Thank you.